Hannah Dunleavy's Outside the Box. Hello and welcome to this month's Outside the Box. We're a tiny bit early for a couple of reasons. Number one, we are about to go to the Edinburgh Festival and we will not be in a recording studio for a couple of weeks. Number two, two of the things I've actually been really looking forward to start on the 9th and the 16th of August and I'd like to actually be able to see them or at least some of them before I... Do one, so maybe we'll do one at the end of August when we've had a chance to watch Glow, which is out on the 9th of August, and Mindhunter, which is out on the 16th of August. Finally, a date. A date. I do have a couple of bits of news. Should we do those first? Production starts on the fourth series of Unforgotten in September, which is good. I thought Unforgotten. That's good. Uh, The third one was really good. Love Sanjeev Bhaskar, love Nicola Walker. They always get some great character actors. I have every reason to believe that that will be good. I would imagine if we're filming in September, we'll probably get it May next year, possibly. Big news number two is that there has been a trailer for Watchmen based on the Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons graphic novel. It's by HBO. It stars Regina King, Gene Smart, Jeremy Irons, lots of people. Why do I give a fuck? You're possibly wondering. The man at the helm of this is Damon Lindelof. Last seen making The Leftovers. So I think it'll be interesting. Got a great performance out of Regina King in The Leftovers as well. I mean, not that Regina King ever doesn't give a good performance, but got a a different sort of Regina King than we're used to seeing, I think. I mean, that's quite an exciting cast as well, isn't it? In general, yeah. Yeah. Don't know when that's coming, but it will be soon. And finally, we were talking about what a great year it had been for television, and it has. The Emmys seem to believe that, from just from their nominations, that the best thing on TV this year so far has been Chernobyl. I will certainly agree with that. The only thing that I think could possibly touch it for greatness this year is the third series of The Deuce, and there is a date on that. <gasps> the 9th of September is when it's on HBO, I would imagine it will be on in the UK quite quickly after the first series they made us wait for. The second series was like the following week. Quite a lot of HBO series now seem to come out the week after here. Uh, yeah, don't I they? don't think yeah. they'll simulcast it. I don't think no. it's got an audience big enough for that. But I think that we will have seen it. Certainly we'll have seen it by year's end. So, hooray. Also, just one other thing that I want to mention. I finally had a chance to have a look and see who won the BAFTAs, which happened in May, because, of course, you know, I was away and it was all very, we were all very busy. And I saw that Jessica Hines had won the BAFTA for Best Comedy Performance for There She Goes. And if you want to seek out her speech, she opened with possibly the best line I've ever heard anyone open uh, an acceptance speech with. She said, just being nominated in this group of women and just looking at those performances they were just playing, you know, it really makes you think, I should really get a television. (laughs) (laughs) Can we mention the trailer for His Dark Materials? You can, yes. Um, The trailer's been on the telly, the full trailer. I watched it, got goosebumps all over, and then uh, then York Burness and the Armoured Bear was on and I burst into tears. And then I saw Lin-Manuel Miranda was Lee Scoresby and I burst into tears again. And it wasn't even like... I mean, I know we talk about me crying about dogs quite a lot, but, like, I'm very excited about it. It looks fucking amazing. It's going to be amazing. Ruth Wilson's in it. It's going to so be good. Well good. I think that is coming 
I'm guessing Christmas. Christmas. Yeah, I guess it will be yeah, Christmas. I thought so. From the from the lead time on it, and why not? With things like that, let's get Hype people it excited. The fuck up. Exactly. Christmas is only four and a bit months away, guys. So let's talk about what's actually been on the telly that we've watched. I have things that I've seen. Jen and I have seen some things together. Jen's seen thing mixing. Anyway, so I thought I might start with Channel Four. I do it by channel. Two things that I've seen on Channel 4. The first one is Catch-22. Has anybody had a chance to watch it? Okay, That finished last week, maybe the week before. It's obviously all still up on More 4. All four, all fours. Famously an unfilmable novel by Joseph Heller about, you know, the ludicrousness of war. Have they done a good job of filming the unfilmable novel? Yeah, haven't done a bad job of it. Anybody has read Catch Twenty Two? They have yep. taken it from its out of orderness and put it into chronological order, which I think is possibly the only way you can make some sense of filming it. Certainly on a six-part series, especially if you're watching it week by week, I think it would probably blow your mind. Starring Christopher Abbott, who you probably know was oh, he was Marnie's boyfriend in the first couple of series of Girls. Oh, Carl Chandler. Big Heart, Hugh Laurie, some George Clooney, not a huge amount of George Clooney, but some George Clooney, who also directed episode four and six, and I want to come on to episode six later. Yeah, great performances, I thought, by everyone. It is, I mean, it's to say it's war is hell, I mean, that's such a fucking cliche, because obviously it is. I think sometimes think people say war is pointless when they talk about Catch-22. I don't think that's strictly true, because, you know, of all, it's based on Joseph Heller's experiences in World War Two, which weren't great, but I think even he would say that, you know, World War Two was actually a war worth fighting. I mean, rare example, but there is. It's really horrible in parts because really horrible things happen in it. It's also hilarious in parts because it's based on a really funny satire. So I was pleased, but I think it peaked for me in episode six, and I think this is where Cloney really came into his own in the... It's kind of Cohen-esque in its funniness. I don't know if it's a spoiler alert. In episode six, there's a point at which Yossarian gets hit and he gets hit by shrapnel in the bollocks. And he has to escape from his plane. He gets caught in a tree and then he basically has to walk to find help. And Christopher Abbott walking with shrapnel in his bollocks goes on for so fucking long. And it is so fucking funny. And then when he finally finds help and an old man is stitching him up, loads of old ladies, Italian ladies, are sitting around him just looking and just looking really concerned. One of them is holding an enormous bowl of plums. <laughs> <laughs> it, made, it proper made me guffaw laughing. So for nothing else, well done, Clooney. That was really, really great. Mick, you've watched something on Channel 4. I have. I have started watching the I Am anthologies by Dominic Savage and I know Jen has watched the first one which Mm -hmm. is called I Am Nicola and stars Vicky McClure and Perry Fitzpatrick so should we start with that one Mm -hmm. what did you think Jen? Yeah I liked it do you know what though it did make me I think this might be a bit of an unpopular opinion it made me feel a bit at times like maybe she was coercively controlling him a bit as well I was sort of wondering if there was going to be like a mad twist so to put that into context, it is about yeah, sorry. a coercive control relationship. So it's there's three female-led hour-long dramas 
And the first one, I am Nicola. Vicky McClure is Nicola, her boyfriend Adam, and they're in, I'd say, a toxic relationship. They're very yeah. much not getting along. It's definitely toxic. Um, yeah. And I sort of agree with what you're saying, sort of don't. I think that's the way coercive, having been in one, I think that's the way co- coercive control relationships can play out. What we see is her getting angry and then we see a little bit of Adam getting angry, but we see more his wheedling and his manipulation that way and it culminates with him threatening to kill himself if she leaves him for even one night. And I thought there was just a there was a brief thing where she's asked him to do something or he's promised to do something and he doesn't do it and he comes through the door and she immediately starts shouting at him. And it's not until about two-thirds of her shouting at him that she goes, weeks have passed. And I thought it was a real misstep that they didn't get that information in earlier because it makes her look very, very unreasonable. Yeah. And actually, when someone is promising you things and then letting you down constantly and constantly, yeah, of at some point you will flip. Yeah. But apart from that, I thought it was a really beautiful, intense study on a toxic relationship. Yeah. I did watch it and suddenly think, oh, do I know people that's actually happening to? Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? It's, it, I did think it was very powerful. It certainly made me think. Yeah, it's incredibly uncomfortable. It's all done yeah. with handheld cameras. It's very much in their face. It's incredibly naturalistic It's improvised, acting. isn't it? I think the dialogue's all improvised. They or... sort of were given points to get yeah. to. And Vicky McClaw's brilliant at that. It's, it's, very, it's got that Shane Meadows yeah. vibe that we saw in This Is England. And she is... She's stunning. She's a very, very watchable actor. And in fairness, Perry Fitzpatrick really holds his own there as well. So I thought it was good. I Am Kirsty, which is the second one, and it stars and is co-written by Samantha Morton, absolutely affected me. It's about a single mum who gets into real financial difficulties thanks to a bloke taking all of her stuff and about her trying to bring up her little girls when she's got no money. And she really has no money to pay bills and stuff. And it's it's incredibly emotional and powerful in how understated it is. Now, there are definitely flaws that people could point to in the storyline. Paul Kay is brilliantly horrific as the guy who tells her not all men are bastards and therefore is waving a massive red flag yeah. that he's probably going to become an absolute bastard. Spoiler alert, he's a bastard. And he's not actually given much to do and still manages to make it a very watchable, horrible character. And the other thing is, so the way she gets out of her predicament is she turns to sex work, which is recommended by a friend. And that might seem a little bit trite, like an easy way of commenting on lots of things at once. But it's handled really, really gently. And just, you know, for me, absolutely rammed home the message that what is empowering for one woman isn't necessarily empowering for all women, and can really mess with the definition of the word choice. But what really got me was I was raised by a single mum, and I just remember seeing my mum constantly doing maths that she couldn't get to add up. And there were all these moments where it's very close on Samantha Morton, she's trying to keep this bright smile and this like cheery attitude for her kids, and she's she's drowning. It's, it's incredible. I, I cried a lot during it and after it. Have you seen Samantha Morton's film? No. I wish I fucking knew what it was called now. She grew up... In a care home, didn't she? In care, yeah. Yeah. And so it's based on her experiences in care. It was about 10 years ago, and she wrote and directed it. It's really great. I mean, bleak, really bleak, but, you know, I think she's got 
a real talent for writing about that sort of stuff, largely because she knows about that sort of stuff. And she's such a beautiful actor. She just... She barely needs to do anything, and she she never hams anything up. She's just again, I'd put Vicky McClaw. So I have a question about this because you've seen, have you seen all of them? No, I am Hannah, which is the third one, and is about a Hello. woman. <laughs> it's about Hannah. It's weird. No, it's about a woman dealing with her biological clock <laughs> isn't available yet. So the thing that I would say was, so obviously it's all like female centered stories, blah blah blah. Why did they get a man to make them? And do you think? When you watch it, do you think that it comes across as, like, the female gaze rather than the male gaze? No, I didn't I didn't sense it as a gendered gaze, to be honest. It felt pretty neutral, and I think it was Dominic Savage's idea. Okay. So maybe it goes back to that thing that we've discussed on the podcast a lot, which is, you know, men find it easier to get shit made. Mm. But... I mean, I don't want to criticise him at all. I just thought it was interesting. Credit to him for wanting to make... Yeah like three very powerfully about women stories oh also all the commenters on pieces about I am Nicola whinging about nagging wives and how it would be different and how no one would ever stand for it if this was about like a like a woman and a man and it was flipped around yeah just fuck off probably not listening to us so but, yeah you know. Great. I have one last thing to say about Channel 4, and that's when we got stuck in a horrific traffic jam on the way back from our gig at Canterbury, I listened to a whole trot of the Rule of Three podcast, which is great. And on it, they were talking about Rufus Jones's home, and they said that it was the best pilot that they'd ever seen, and I thought, well, there's a recommendation. So home was out in April, and we never quite got round to it because there was loads of other stuff Around the same time that Derry Girls was out and Alan Partridge was out, so there was a lot of other competition Mm. for it. But I went back and I absolutely fired through it in one single sitting, six episodes. So they're on Channel 4, so what's that, like 25 minutes Mm -hmm. probably. And it is absolutely fucking lovely. Like, it's really, really great. Is Rebecca Statton an absolute powerhouse in it, as in Raised by Wolves? Different sort of powerhouse, but she is. So, yeah, Rufus Jones, if you don't know, he is a comedy actor. He does a lot of stuff with Julia Davis. He was in W1A. He's perhaps our age group's Kevin Eldon. He turns the, up the in, actor Kevin Eldon. in almost everything at some point. He's written this about a couple that are coming home from France on holiday. They open the boot of the car and they have bought an asylum seeker home with them. He then immediately claims asylum and they decide to take him in. Well, I say they decide to take him in. Katie, the character played by Rebecca Staten, decides to take him in and that almost immediately causes conflict in the relationship with her partner, who is played by Rufus Jones. I feel like this is something that Rufus Jones wrote because he wanted to write it, not because he wanted to, a vehicle for himself, because he is not the lead character by any stretch of the imagination. That is split between Rebecca Staten and Yusuf Kirkor, who plays Sammy, who is the Syrian teacher who is now trying to claim asylum in the UK. I think there's a really interesting relationship between those two at the centre of this. I mean, it starts based on the fact that they're both teachers, I think, is what they find in common, and then they make a friendship from them. There's also some interesting stuff about Rebecca Staten's son, who currently doesn't have a father and is kind of conflicted between whether Rufus Jones's character is going to be his new father or whether this guy is going to be his new father figure. It's 
very, very well written. The joke is always on the white people. It is never on the foreigners. He's very sharp. He's very funny. He fits into the UK very well. They make a couple of really excellent political points about why we are scared of asylum seekers, and it's possibly because, you know, the ones that make it over here are quite often us. They are the educated middle-class people who had some money to try and escape from it. There's some really proper moving stuff happens in it. There's a moment, I don't think it's a spoiler, where he's a former teacher and he is in her school where she is a teacher. And when all the kids have gone in, he stands and acts out how he welcomes his kids into his school. And it is proper beautiful. Yeah, it's lovely. Really, really well done, Rufus Jones. Watch this. It's on all four. Do you know if it's got a second series yet? No. No, and I don't think it particularly matters. To be honest, I'd like it to get more because I think it's really good, but I don't think they've left it hanging. I think, well, they have left it hanging, but it kind of fits into this weird thing of we don't, you don't actually find out. If there was a news story and it was about a guy that had washed up and that, you know, he would then just disappear into the ether and the world would move on and you would never learn what happened to him. Do you know what I mean? So in a way, what we actually get of refugee stories is a tiny flash. So if that's what you get from this, it's one tiny flash. But I mean, talk about writing stuff that actually says something about the world that you live in. I think that's like definitively happened here. So, yeah, I mean, fingers crossed for a second series. Good stuff. Let's have a break. And then let's talk about Dark Money and Orange is the New Black and some other stuff that you may have watched after the break. If you find yourself at the Edinburgh Festival this year looking for something to do, well then look no further. Because we, Standard Issue, are putting on four events at The Stand, the best comedy club in the country, if you ask us. On August the 11th and the 12th, we have two In Conversation events where our guests include the brilliant Rosie Jones, Janet Ellis, just the Janet Ellis, Laura Lex, Gemma Kearney. I know. Probably the best thing to do is to get onto our website, www, let's do it the old way, www.standardissuepodcast.com and you will see all our live events there. You will also see the other two events that we are putting on at The Fringe, which is two stand-up nights with all-female bills. They are completely brilliant. Callie Beaton and Jess Foster Q are both on at those shows, and there are, in fact, loads and loads of brilliant women on at those. You will find details of those shows at that website as well. Book yourself a ticket. Come along. It will be great. Okay, so let's talk Dark Money, mm-hmm. which Jen and I have both watched. BBC drama by Levi David Adai, who wrote the award-winning Our Beloved Boy, which is the story of Damaloda Taylor. It holds on to Babu Cisse, who was in that. Other cast members, uh, Jill Halfpenny, Susie Wakoma, Rebecca Front. I mean, it's got good cast. Mm. And it tells the story of a working class family whose kid is picked to be in, uh, let's call it like a Star Wars type franchise, and goes off to Hollywood and comes back reporting that he has been sexually assaulted by a producer. And it's about how they react to and deal with that situation. Jen, do you want to go first on this? Um, Yeah, I don't know how I feel about it, to be honest. I found it quite harrowing. I thought some of the performances were really good. I thought Susie Wakoma, who we love anyway, I thought she was great in it. I really liked her. Some of the others, 
I wasn't sure how much I warmed them, but I don't know if that was kind of the point of it, is that the whole point of it is basically that you're questioning their judgments around how they've dealt with mm. their son's experience and they, you know, for various different reasons. I don't know. I feel like it was handled quite sensitively. I saw that there was a bit of a backlash against it, but I didn't really read too much about it. And Jill Halfpenny had some quite interesting comments about that and about how women are judged on TV and stuff. And I thought it was interesting because it was maybe her character that kind of grated a bit. Well, it was certainly her character that was the most thinly written. Yeah. So I think that's possibly two different issues, how people react to women in this and... The How roles that some people are still yeah. writing for women. I have to say I didn't like it. Okay. I thought it was thin. I thought it was a, a good idea. But when we watched the Damalola Taylor thing, I had one criticism of it, and it wasn't really a criticism, but there was just one area that I thought that it was quite masculine. And I understood why it was quite masculine. Because it was about the dad. Because it was about the dad yeah. and the son and the relationship that they have yeah. together. But I did think that the, the character of his mum had been somewhat sidelined. Now, mm. that said, I was kind of proved wrong because actually, Wamli Misaku ended up winning a BAFTA for that. So she clearly got enough screen time that people thought that, that, that it was worthy of a BAFTA. And it was well-deserved because it was a really good performance. I'm not going to criticise stuff for being about men because men deserve stuff, you know, in the yeah. same way. Nobody's saying Oranges of the New Black should have more men in it. So, you know, I'm well, not going to sit... Some people probably I'm are, not going to but... sit around and say that. However, I think that if you've got female characters, then you have to do something different with them. And I, I think the interesting point with this was everybody had a really masculine reaction to this news. And I'm not saying, you know, you wouldn't be angry because I'm... I'm sure everyone will be angry. I'm sure everybody will be, I want to get their hands on I want to... The closest anyone comes came to putting this within the context of what the events are happening in the world now is Rebecca Front, who I actually thought was the best thing in it. Her character says, oh, like all those brave actresses who lined up and said what they said. So obviously it's a reference to Me Too. Now, once you're saying this exists in the same universe as Me Too, you've got to suggest that people have learnt something, something about sexual abuse, about sexual assault, and nobody in that appeared to have any kind of reaction other than this was something that was so new to them that they hadn't even possibly considered this was a thing. And I think the worst possible case of that is that his sister's reaction to it. And his sister is plays like an 18-year-old girl, and you would have thought, I can't believe that you've grown up in a Me Too, you've had some formative years in, in a post-Me Too-like mm. society. And you've never, you seemingly have never had a conversation with your friends about whether or not you would come forward and talk why a victim would want to be kept private, mm. why somebody wouldn't want to be forced. And she basically throws a hand grenade into the family by going to the press. And that plot line is preposterous because the press would never, ever, in your wildest dreams, print an accusatory story that was based on one person who one person's accusation who'd never actually even talked to the victim so it just felt like they were characters that it was women that had been written by men and i, I felt that was a fault in it yeah i think you're right i think it was predominantly about like the dad sort of coming to terms with what had happened to his son and and yeah so i think it was more about him than maybe the other characters necessarily. But I did think they did some quite interesting things with it, like the way they looked at the boy and 
his reaction to it and the things that he then goes on to do. Yeah, but they took three million pounds and they never sent him for counselling. I mean, who would do that? I mean, that just seems ridiculous. That, that I also wondered, how the fuck did they buy that house and live the lifestyle they did with three million quid? Because you're yeah. not fucking buying that house for three million quid, no. let alone all the cars and other shit they got. But anyway, that's by the by. Um, this is London, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> um, yeah, it, I, it wasn't... It wasn't perfect, but I thought they did do some interesting things with it. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I agree. When it was motoring along quite well, it was good. But when Jill Halfpenny was trying to get across what a mother thinks without dialogue, just staring for the third or fourth time, I thought, give her a chance to fucking speak. I'd quite <laughs> like to know what actually is going on in her head rather than just the idea of, oh, there's torment going on in her head, which we were presented with quite a lot. Didn't really understand the point of the mum either. His mother? Yeah. Oh, she would, it's seems... just like around being overbearing with no real explanation as to why or, or like actual sort of plot device. Although that is actually largely mothers. Or cut that out. <laughs> Anybody watched anything else on BBC? Okay, in which case I thought I would go on to the only thing that I have left, which is the seventh and final series of Orange is the New Black, which... After Needs s- more men, doesn't it? Yeah, which after saying I wasn't going to watch it, I then decided I was going to watch it. M- the trailer's amazing. I saw a couple of articles, you know, because it's come to an end, talking about it, and I thought, you know what? Five wasn't good and six wasn't good. But when Orange is the New Black has been good, it has been amongst the best bits of the TV of the Season decade. Season four and is therefore. just astonishing, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know when the end of the decade is I mean technically is it 2019 is it 2020 I don't know there's always that argument but say we're going to take it at 2019 absolutely the sight of Poussey dead on that floor what is one of the just what the fuck like proper moments just screaming what the fuck has happened here yeah it was harrowing awful and that that is where it's mix of throwing some comedy in made it even more stark yeah what series was that? Season four. four. Okay. Season five isn't terrible, but it paints it painted itself into yeah. a corner. But like there are some incredible performances within that. And season six is just very silly. Disappointingly yes, silly. It is. And okay, let's start talking about season seven and then I can kind of talk about, you know, what what, what I mean with this. Because this series, it's not about a women's prison. You know, but arguably, it never was about a women's prison. It, it got this book, and it decided to make a series with it. And then I think almost immediately they realised that they had an audience, they had Netflix supporting them, they had women, like great actresses, and that they had the opportunity to try and say something about the world as it is now. And the difficulty yep. with that was they painted themselves into this narrative box in which... Basically, Piper has spent 18 months in prison, but yet it has covered all of the news that has happened over the seven-year period. So it creates this kind of odd juxtaposition that you can't quite get your head round. That still exists. That still bothers me. But it doesn't bother me as much as it did with Series 6. So I think it's because the rest of it stands up that you don't start to notice the, the little bits that go wrong. Now, when we left Series 6, we left... Blanca in a terrible position where she was released from prison and immediately arrested by ICE. And that is where this is going. Yes, it is still set around a women's prison, but it goes much, much wider than that. And this is about immigration. This is about 
splitting up families. This is about homelessness. This is about FGM. This is about Me Too. And it is on a much, much wider scale. It just happens to be taking place partly in a women's prison. And they go really, really hard on ice. And it feels heavy-handed. Then if you think about the story of Diane Guerrero, who plays Maritza, and Maritza is back in this series. And what happened to her family in real life, which is she came home from school and her entire family had been deported. Fucking hell. That you think, okay, it's not heavy-handed. They're doing a really good job of making you angry. And and you should be fucking angry about what's happening to all immigrants, but to women and to their children. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is, and who would have thought it, there is like a proper punch in the throat moment, which comes from Fig, of all people, played by Alicia Reiner. <laughs> really? Fig, the most morally ambiguous character in this, and she that includes the prisoners. I yeah. mean, she is like, she works for the... For the man. The highest bidder. Yeah, she works on the outside. And she has an incredible moment in this with her and an asylum seeker. The mental health stories, you know, they they continue to show that mental health stories don't wrap up happily at the end. Even if they're happy now, you know, you could go back there. And I think they are to be credited with that. Lolly, Suzanne, Morello all have serious long-term mental health problems. And you know, I think when you watch this, that they will never come out of jail because of that. Um, what a scandal that in itself is, to be honest. Well, there's the argument that women's prisons are just the new women's asylums. Well, quite. I don't give a shit about Piper and Alex. You know, if they were actually friends in my life, I'd have cut them out of my life by now <laughs> because they just that. Oh, well, are they together? Are they not together? All of that said, they do a good job of that. That's not their fault. That's nothing against Taylor Schilling and, and Laura Prepon. They just, you know, that plot line doesn't do anything for me. But Daniel Brooks is magnificent as ever. Like, so Is there a lot brilliant. about Tasty and Cindy? Because I guess they're thrown back yeah, together. Yeah, there is. And of course, there's a lot about, like, women are coming out of prisons. There's a lot about how difficult it is to, like, reintegrate with the rest of society. I mean, plus it also does reinforce, I think, the thing that I have said right from the start is that, you know, I fucking hate Alida Diaz. I actually think she's the most unpleasant individual in this, the worst person on earth. And nothing, she is, nothing. She is that, like, this just reinforces that. She is just terrible, terrible. And that storyline comes to up very... Very, well, let's just say, not great end itself. So there's good for some people, there's bad for some people, which is, you know, life, I suppose. Whether the people that get the good are the people who deserve it, whether the people that get the bad are the people that deserve it, I don't know. Also, much like life. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I definitely watch it. it is, I it was is, always going to watch it. I've watched six seasons and it's the last listeners, one. Listeners, definitely. I've tried to be non-spoilery for you, but, de- yeah, definitely watch it because... Is it still putting some comedy in there? It is, yeah, it is. Oh, and also like Natasha Leone, who is one of their most reliable comedy actresses, actually gets to do some stuff that isn't comedy as well, which is great. Yeah, she um, is incredible. She's terrific. Yeah, I think when, when people have a little, when someone writes a book, maybe it'll be us, I don't know, about how women have been represented in television and when everything's great and women are treated the same and we draw a line back that says, you know, Tenko, Cagney and Lacey, call the midwife, whatever, 
Orange is the New Black will, will be there because I think it has changed how we talk about how we represent women and what sort of women we represent. Even just on uh, women's bodies that you see on television. Yeah. Even if it's just some yeah. of them are much, much larger than what you usually see. Yeah. Or older. Yeah. Okay. Who's seen anything else that they want to talk about? Having watched I Am Kirsty and feeling thoroughly affected by it, I wanted something that was a bit of a palate cleanser. And so I, I went over to Netflix and there was something called Frankenstein's Monsters, Monster Frankenstein. And it starred David Harbour and billed itself as some sort of mockumentary about David Harbour, the actor. And it starts off very, very well. But it's basically the best drunk idea this group of people have ever had. But they rushed it and made it before they sobered up. So there's just... It just sort of goes nowhere. And there's this brilliant start where he's like, I don't know if you know this, but I come from a long line of actors. And he's just stood next to a photo of himself, but with a different name under it, like David Harbour Jr. He's David Harbour Jr. the third. And it's all about how his dad was a monster and a, like a thoroughly unpleasant man. And he goes through it in via a play that his dad wrote and starred in, which was about Frankenstein's monster. And there's some lovely lines in there that made me chuckle, but I felt like I was having some sort of fever dream. The bonus is it lasts half an hour, so if you do just want to have a, a, a fever dream, like you've taken some acid and watched some telly, heartily recommend. And this isn't brand new, but I finally finished What We Do in the Shadows. Yes. Fucking Mike. Fucking Mike. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually going to be my final question was whether you'd watched it. We went out, we drank the blood, but they had drugs, and now I'm a wizard. <laughs> it's one of the best things I've seen, like, forever. Hannah Dunleavy's Outside the Box.